Well, good morning again, everyone, and grateful to spend some time listening to the Word of God together today. I want to wish you a happy Father's Day, and if there's any uh, people visiting today for family, hope that you have a good day together. Would you join me in prayer as we spend some time in this text from 1 Peter? Lord, the f- grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the Word of the Lord will endure forever. Lord, I pray that you would be lifted up through the proclamation of your word, that your will would be done, your kingdom would come in this place, that you would take, Lord, these words and uh, plant them deep within our hearts, move us beyond just insight into a transformative encounter with your spirit through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm so grateful to be a pastor, and it's been such a privilege to be in ministry with you, and Julie and I are so glad to have landed here in Bellingham. can't imagine myself doing anything else. What I do struggle with at times, though, is carrying the pastor label, uh, especially when I'm outside the walls of the church. And perhaps you've encountered this at times where you've bumped into some resistance or maybe even some hostility towards Christianity and towards the church. There's uh, some uh, recent statistics that have come out that said that 79% of non-Christian Americans have a negative view of the church. They do not see it as a positive force for good in our culture. And that's some pretty striking numbers when you think about that. And so as a representative of that institution, when people ask me what I do for a living, I'm sometimes a little insecure about it. I'm wondering where this conversation might go. And uh, maybe you've encountered that in your workplaces or at family gatherings or in social media spaces where religion comes up. Uh, A few years ago, we were at a family gathering, and I remember... Uh, rubbing shoulders with a relative who I knew had just posted on Facebook an article called Religion Poisons Everything. (laughs) I thought, well, they know I'm a pastor, and so I'm the representative of this organization that apparently is poisoning everything. It feels a little bit insecure, doesn't it, as we step into that cultural space. What I want to do today is, is speak into that and ask this question, how do we bear witness to the gospel in a culture that's increasingly post-Christian, moving away from Christianity and having a, a negative view of that? And I think that the book of 1 Peter is very instructive in this regard. As we've noticed throughout this series, we recall that the recipients of this letter are facing some pretty intense persecution. There is hostility towards this new movement. And to be very clear, the type of resistance they are facing is much more dire than perhaps the social awkwardness or rejection we sometimes face. I'm cautious in overly aligning ourselves with their story because they required a much deeper level of faith and courage. Their profession of faith could lead to death. In fact, uh, Tacitus, who is a historian writing in this era, said of the Emperor Nero, who was in power, that the profession of faith by Christians often did result in, in death. And we know that Peter, our writer, himself faced crucifixion, as tradition goes, very soon after this letter circulated. And so I'm, I'm just aware of that. I'm humbled by that. And if anything, I wonder if that might add a level of conviction to us, to inspire us to deeper levels of faith and courage, 
based on what our forebears modeled for us against difficult odds. I'm also aware of the fact that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ face a very similar circumstance today. There's a, an organization that publishes what's called the World Watch List, and it tracks the persecution of Christians around the world today, contemporary time. And some recent statistics from a year ago tells us that upwards of 13 Christians, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, are murdered every day for their faith in real time. That's 400 Christians a month are losing their life for their faith. That's more than our congregation. And so I'm humbled by that and, and want to be inspired by that as we step into difficulties, but, but much less at stake for us. May that inspire us to this level of, of courage. How do we step in? How do we bear witness to Christ in, in contexts where there is opposition or rejection or maybe hostility? That's where I want to go today. And I, I think our text begins by warning us how not to engage that space. It is understandable that in the face of hostility and rejection, we could be easily governed by fear. And you imagine the fear that risking your life for the message of Christianity would cause. And so I think it's understandable why our writer today begins by addressing and confronting the reality of fear. He names it, it also and calls us to, to move beyond fear. And so our text begins today in verse 13, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. This is a quote also from Isaiah 8, a reference back to when the Israelites were facing much political opposition. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Now, this is a tall order, and yet I think there is wisdom in where this writer begins because the, the reality is that when we are driven by fear, our reactions are not going to be very effective, and they might actually get in the way of our public witness as Christians. Fear has a way of having a negative impact, uh, causing us to act in ways that are, are maybe not very healthy. This is a quote from the psychologist Sue Towery. Maybe you can connect this to your experience. Fear impacts our thinking and decision-making in negative ways, leaving us susceptible to intense emotions and impulsive reactions. Anybody, I won't ask for a raise of hands there, but we can probably trace that in our story that fear sometimes have a, has a negative impact, causes us to have intense emotions, impulsive reactions. I'll give you an example, uh, and I don't know if I've shared this story before. A number of years ago down in Longview, a swarm of bees moved into our, uh, our chimney. And this was an old 1940s house, and the flue didn't have a tight seal. And so for a couple of days, we lived in this ap apocalyptic scene. It was like this plague had descended upon our house as bees got through the flue, and they were covered in soot, and they were making black dots everywhere. We had a newborn baby. I was panicking. And in the place of fear, I didn't always make the best decisions. And the one that uh, comes to the surface for me is when I saw a bee land on a new lamp that Julie had bought from Target. And in, in that fearful moment, I thought, it makes sense for me to take a book and crush that bee, right? I proceeded to do that and uh, broke the, the lampshade and made a mess of things, right? Fear causes us to act impulsively and has a negative influence on our actions. Now, here's the challenge for us. We, we live in a culture where fear is very much amplified. 
it is to the benefit of those seeking power and profit to exploit fear. And we need to be very much aware of that, that in our response to very real challenges, fear can sometimes cause us to act in ways that I think can get in the way, actually, of our public witness. That we can begin to embrace violence or aggression, or we can uh, take on a response of bitterness or anger towards the other. The goal is not to win over the other, but to defeat. That's why we use language like culture wars. It's a language of battle. And I think we just need to be aware of that, that we need to, I think, hear this as we seek to step into that cultural space to be cautious about the power of fear, and that we need to figure out how to confront fear, because left unchecked, I think it can actually disrupt our public witness. I think it's important for us to note uh, what the writer of First Peter says, where he says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. This is an echo from one of Jesus' Beatitudes, where he says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I just want us to notice the qualifier there. Dale Bruner, in his commentary on the Beatitudes, says, we aren't blessed for being persecuted for unrighteousness' sake, <laughs> right? And just to be very honest, I think there are examples culturally right now of Christians getting in trouble for the wrong reasons, where sometimes, led by fear, uh, there has been a reason why there's 79% of, the of non-Christians resistant to the church. I think we need to own some of that percentage. Now, I'm not speaking to us specifically as Bellingham Covenant Church. I'm just thinking broad-spectrum Christianity. And perhaps you've had moments where you've been frustrated by the way the name of Jesus has been dragged through dirt in different ways, through, through bad behavior. We are not blessed for being persecuted for unrighteousness' sake, but for the right reasons. And that's why I think we need to begin by just acknowledging fear and, and perhaps uh, seeking God's leading as we seek to work beyond that. Fear is normal, but we need to figure out what to do with that. And so that's what I want to engage in our conversation today. I want to hold up for us, based on this text, text some virtues that I think will guide our public witness in a post-Christian setting, in places where there is resistance. And the, the first thing that I want to lift up for us is this virtue of faith. So our writer has said, do not be frightened. Do not fear what they fear. And then the sentence continues, and it gives us this antidote to fear. It's, the text goes on to say, but instead of being frightened, instead of fearing what they fear, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What I believe we are encountering in this text is an antidote to fear. Instead of fearing what others are saying or how they might respond to us, we are instead supposed to replace that with a fear of the Lord, a trust of, uh, of Christ as our true master and Lord, setting him apart as the one that we trust, that we follow, that we obey. The writer of 1 Peter goes on to remind us who this Lord is that we are called to make central in our hearts. He calls us to, to focus again on the hope of a, a God who faced the worst that the world has to send to our way and who overcame it on the cross. 
That is the Lord that we set apart in our hearts. And that ought to evoke within us a renewed hope that though we face hard things, though things are overwhelming, we have set apart in our hearts a God who is more powerful than those forces we are up against. And so the text goes on to say, as we look to Christ, as we set apart him as our Lord, we are looking to Christ who also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We follow a God who, in the face of great opposition, of rejection, of pain and suffering, did not retaliate, did not choose the way of violence, but choose the way of sacrifice. And through that, emerged on the other side of death and was raised by the Spirit. That is the source of our hope. That is why the writer of 1 Peter has the audacity to say, you do not need to be afraid, because we have a God who is with us, a God who is more powerful than the things we are up against. So may we sanctify him as Lord in our hearts. In the face of fear, we may look elsewhere for relief. We may look to power, to money, to violence, to influence, because we feel insecure, and so we need something to replace that. We are called again to this renewed faith that we have a God who is bigger than the fears that we face. This is what the psalmist models for us. David faced all kinds of resistance, all kinds of persecution, all kinds of political upheaval. His own sons rejected him, but he regularly re-centered his heart on the hope of who God was. Psalm 46, which we quote often, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. Do you see the reason why we do not need to fear? It's because God is our, our refuge and strength. Even though the earth is giving away, things seem to be getting away from us, things seem overwhelming, we need to set apart this God as Lord of our hearts. The second virtue I want to lift up for us that I believe guides effective public witness in a post-Christian culture is this call to authenticity, to be transformed internally, to be captured by the good news of the gospel. Before we can bear, good, bear witness to this good news, we need an encounter with this good news. And so the writer goes on to say, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Can we notice that witness actually does not begin with words, but it begins with a life that exudes hope, where people begin to inquire and wonder what is different about you. This is a, a shout back to verse 1, where First Peter states that we were born into a living hope. We know that this is not a theoretical hope, not an intellectual hope, but a living hope that is at, at work within you, that is alive within you. Effective public witness requires people that are authentically transformed by this good news, so much so that people begin to ask about it and wonder about it. We need to be formed in this way so that our witness will have credibility in a skeptical world. There's a book by George Hunter who wrote a book called The Celtic Way of Evangelism. He was trying to understand historically how the Celtic church had such a powerful impact on a pagan society, how they evangelized this culture. And what he notices is that they didn't use many of the techniques that we've tried in the later part of the 20th century, but instead they really sought to cultivate authentic communities. 
But that authentic sign was so significant to their witness. And so George Hunter connects this to our cultural moment, and this is what he observes in his research. And he says this, my interview research with secular people has confirmed the prominence of the credibility theme in secular people's inquiries about Christianity. Some people wonder whether we really believe what we say we believe. Some people do not doubt that we believe it. They wonder whether we live by it. And some people do not doubt that we believe or live by it. They wonder whether it makes much difference. I think this is really instructive to us as we notice this passage that the early church were called to live authentically such that this hope that is within us was compelling in their witness, invited people to inquire more which reminds us again that the effective witness of the church is dependent on our own discipleship, our own formation. We notice that is where the book of 1 Peter began. It didn't first give us instructions about how to evangelize. It didn't give us a script and say, go cold call a bunch of people. It said it started all about our own hearts being transformed by this new identity, being aware and captured by this new inheritance being sanctified by the work of the Spirit. Effective outreach, again, begins with that effective inreach that transforms us where we're at into lights in the world. Mike Breen is a missiologist and Christian leader, and as he observes American culture, he concludes by saying, at the end of the day, we actually don't have a missional problem, we have a discipleship problem. And when you make disciples, you will get mission every time. And I, and I think that's a helpful word, that if, as we focus on our own formation, as we become people filled with this living hope, mission's just going to happen. Evangelism's just going to happen organically. So we are called to cultivate the virtue of authenticity as we tend to our own formation. The third virtue I want to hold up for us in this text is the virtue of courage. So, looking again at our passage today, again, the, the writer says in verse 15, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, this, in this context, was a call to courage. The word answer is actually the word apology. It was sometimes used in a legal context when someone might be under the risk of imprisonment or death to give a defense of your faith, even when there was great risk. This reminds us that there is a time to speak and a call to speak with courage about what we believe. And perhaps uh, this is a, a counterbalance to how we do evangelism. Yes, it's about living our lives, but there is opportunities where we are invited to, with courage, enter into hard conversations to proclaim our faith. I wonder how that, that is for you. And I, I want to counter that early statistic. I, I mentioned that 79% of non-Christians, people outside the church, are skeptical of Christianity. They're resistant to the institution of the church. There's another BeliefNet and Newsweek poll that was done a few years ago that said that 79% of Americans, the same amount of Americans, also claim to be deeply spiritual and claim that they have spiritual needs. 
which reminds us that there are people that are seeking. There are people that are looking for answers. And I, I want to invite us into that space to, when there are opportunities to have courage to enter into those conversations. I was at a wedding a couple years back, facil- facilitating the wedding, and I was seated at the reception next to this young kind of hipster from Seattle who went to art school. I was feeling pretty insecure. I was like, he probably doesn't want to talk to the pastor. But as we were engaging in conversation and eating, I was surprised because he actually approached me and, and said, what's it like to be a pastor? And he proceeded to break all my stereotypes and said, I've been really asking all these questions about Christianity. And we got into this amazing conversation that I probably would have missed by just assuming, oh, he probably doesn't want to go there, right? There's a book written by Brian McLaren quite a few years ago called More Ready Than You Realize, and he's uh, just exploring the, the landscape of culture and how people are talking about religion and spirituality, and there's all these kinds of questions. And maybe it requires some courage on our part to be able to speak and to talk and enter into those conversations that we feel uncomfortable about. Does God want to build within us perhaps some courage to find our voice? to speak even when it comes with risk, to speak up for what is right and good, even though there might be opposition. The last uh, virtue I want to lift up for us today is this virtue of integrity. Of integrity. Now, growing up in youth group and in the church, I had come across 1 Peter 3.15 a few times. It was was one of these just well-known verses, be ready to give an answer. It was used to promote evangelism and to talk about our faith. It wasn't until later on when I was reading the scriptures myself that I realized the second part of the verse was never memorized. And this is like the important part. (laughs) Let's keep reading. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I think this is an important word for us today that our words and actions would have some alignment. Uh, some old research from the Barn Institute said that a lot of millennial non-believers classify Christians as hypocritical. They see this misalignment between words and actions. I wonder what that realignment might look like for us. Again, this calls us to tend to our own souls. But can I just remind us that the means as as important as the message, and when those are out of alignment, the message gets lost. We cannot proclaim a God of grace and not act graciously. We cannot proclaim a God of mercy and fail to show mercy. Martin Marty is a public theologian, and uh, I love this quote that I think is, just names our cultural moment. He says, one of the real problems in modern life is that people who are good at being civil lack strong convictions, and people who have strong convictions lack civility. <laughs> kind of an interesting observation, and you may put yourself on one of those spectrums or the other, but can I call us into a convicted civility? where we have the courage to speak about convictions, but to do so with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, watching not just our words, but our actions, because those speak so loudly in the culture 
that is opposed to our message. We are called into this pattern of integrity. I want to end with a, a story that happened a long time ago, and there is a man named Diognetus. I love quoting all these old weird saints. I was telling Jeff, I got to be relevant with the young people, so I got to quote Diognetus. No, I'm just kidding. Diognetus wrote a letter in the, the second century to a Roman leader in the government who was inquiring about these Christians. It's become a well-known historical document. Tell me about these Christians. And I want you to hear how Diognetus described these early believers to public officials who were very skeptical of this new sect, of this new religion. It's a powerful, powerful letter. I want to read it at length here. And so Diognetus writes to this Roman leader, Christians, while following the customs of the natives and clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life, display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. What a, what a summary statement. Their wonderful, striking way of life. As citizens, they participate in everything with others, yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. I just want to pause there. Remember we began that our call is to be resident aliens. We're in the world, but not of the world. And so they describe what this looks like. They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they also do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, but blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up, in one word, what the soul is, to the body, that is what Christians are in the world. Well, the soul is in the body, that is what Christians are in the world. And as I read this, I just wonder, what letter would be written of us? How would we be described to those who are skeptical or unsure about these Christians? How are we being described in our culture? You might think about that personally. You might think about that as the large church. But I would submit to you this. I believe that 21st century America needs some more second century kinds of Christians. That these people that faced way more risk <laughs> lived with great courage, with authenticity and integrity. Why? Because they had set apart Christ as their Lord. They put their hope in him. And because of that, they brought life to a world in pain. May that be said of us by God's grace. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for this word. It's a convicting word. 
We cannot realize this vision apart from you. We're reminded of your word to us that apart from you we can do nothing. I pray, Lord, that we would abide more and more in your love, that you would bring about this fruit of righteousness and goodness in our life for the sake of the world, for the sake of our witness. Lord, we confess and repent of the ways we have sometimes struggled to represent you. Would you call us in, in new paths? Lord, I pray that you would, by your strength, by your spirit, instill within us renewed courage, renewed faith, renewed integrity, so that we might represent you well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.